I can open a door to China, a very peculiar door, my door, my China. Do you have a China of your own? Can you name 10 designers in China? Five architects? One fashion designer? Do you love China? Don't you work to develop a love for something? Cheese? Wine? Have you listened to Oxygen? Oxygen? By Jean-Michel Jarre? So welcome to Learner Centered Design Education. I'm your host, Saumitri Vardarajan. Today's episode is titled China, How I Grew My Love. Why Oxygen? Because uh, Oxygen is, uh, let's say, prototypical French music. And ever since I encountered Oxygen, and I don't listen to it a lot because it's, I listened to it a very long time ago. At that time, I was in my 20s, I was at university, and it was French, and it was Oxygen and everything. And then in preparing for today's talk, I sort of came across the fact that he's now married to Gong Li, who celebrated uh, Chinese actor in many of the movies, such as Shanghai Triad. So I'm actually dressed today as a Triad member. So I've got my waistcoat and I've got my triad jacket. It's become too warm to wear my jacket. So it's a bit of, let's say, uh, walk down history lane. Okay. So the the idea of the, the notion of the triad, I don't know, you probably think of triads as some gangsters or something like that. But they're sort of more um, mercantile families that sort of get together and so on. It's a Hong Kong terminology or Macau terminology. So what I'm wearing today is me trying to be dressed up like I'm in 1920s Shanghai. Okay, so that's one intervention today. My second one then is that um, uh, you've probably heard the name Bruce Lee. It means something to you. Now, I encountered Bruce Lee again like with everything that I tell you quite a while ago. Bruce Lee was Chinese. He was in a Kung Fu karate film and it was fantastic. The year actually was 1978. I was in year three of my engineering and this was in India. If you had said to me then that 27 years later I would be a Laoshu in Foshan or I would be a professor who'd be teaching in China, especially in Foshan City, I would have gone, huh, what? No. So Bruce Lee is not from Foshan, but Foshan claims him. Foshan's actually a city where there was another martial arts, a very famous martial arts person, and his name was Ip Man. So if you're an action movie fan, you can go onto YouTube or you can go and See, there's a film called Ip Man. So, do I have a photo with me and Bruce Lee in Foshan? I do. There's a, there's, a, there's a bronze cast outside Foshan Temple, and you can go and stand next to it, and people can take a photo of you. Now, we're not in 1978 anymore. We, we're going back to 1700, 300 years ago. There were two countries in 1700 
there were two countries which were considered the wealthiest yeah the two countries were india and china i think india was worth 20% of global gdp and uh, it was about the time that uh, you had columbus and various people who set out on mercantile ships to asia and then they came with guns and they know they weren't very friendly people so they did a bunch of nasty things um does the name vidal sassoon mean anything to you <laughs> it's a big international hairdressing business my hair clipper is a vidal sassoon vidal so the sassoons are an iraq iraqi jew family and they were quite big in india and then they moved to china and they were the big ones actually exporting opium which was grown in india and it was taken to china to get the whole of the chinese population addicted so there's a bit of a story there so this was the period in china called the shing dynasty so here's another nugget of information so you got gongli bruce lee uh, triad boss and 1700 okay the next little bit of news is and then i'll try to tie it all together later on so there's a film la chinoise by a french filmmaker jean-luc godard i was 22 years old 1983 when i watched godard's la chinoise and i've got a little bit of music from la chinoise that i'm going to play for you that's a little bit of jean-luc godard from the film la chinoise um but you heard the word mao mao so that's actually chairman mao so there is a period 1968 europe where it was a sort of a youth uprising on the streets of europe in the us it's also known as the woodstock period so there were people out protesting at uh, college students university students and and so the posters of mao and mao's red book were red and they were quite common so la chinois is a snapshot of let's say the 1960s and it's a film by Jean-Luc Godard it is significant that i saw it in 1983 so you can start to see that uh, china was in my life from that period like china is in everybody's life but it's your own form of china i've never been to china by this time so china was a metaphor or it was a project china in lushan was and the red book and so on was idealism this was in in godard's film it was in india so there's this thing called the project of china and everybody's watching it because in those days um well roughly around that time uh, chairman mao was still alive there was a whole lot of things that china was doing it was an experimental project to transform Uh, Chinese society to take it back from the occupiers and to make something out of it so china was a project but in those days even india was a project it had uh, only about 40 years before then been decolonized from the british colonizers so these were redesign projects and when you are in design school and somebody says this is a project and there's a conversation around it and you're doing a redesign you're looking at these people as designers were they designers So so it's it's let's say this is one aspect of China 
that I had. Now, looking back now, I'm sort of asking myself the question, could I, would I, do I dare dream of becoming a China scholar? What even is a China scholar? Am I an India scholar? I'm a designer, so I can't be a scholar. No, I have been interested. And like you're building your air table, I have a metaphorical air table, which is my bookshelf or my brain or the films I've seen. So maybe I was being very foolish. Maybe my sort of passion for, let's say there was Italy, there was Japan also, but this passion for China uh, is just the kind of project that I embark on. And then I moved to Australia. So in 2004, this project actually became a, a project. It, it, it had a name. It was called the Great Civilizations Project. And it's a project I set up. Then I went and looked for some funding. Then I collaborated with other people. So my first visit to China was in 2005. That was about 18 years ago. Now, the topic for today's talk is called China, How I Grew My Love. Okay. I'm going to edit it, edit this, and then I'm going to put it up as a podcast with a ton of links for you to go and pursue if you want. Today, if I look back, do I feel the love? Yes. Uh, do I have a China reading list? Yes. Do I have a China podcast list? Yes. And then do I have my own China story? Yes. Now, this is the China that lives inside my head. Now... This is something that all of you are embarking on. You know, it's there is no authentic China. It's for Guope. It she she invokes a China. She invokes something about craft. She does something when she speaks about the fact that she's reaching back into China. Wang Shu in his Harvard lecture again talks about. So they, everybody's got their own China. It's a thing. It's. It's there, it doesn't exist. So just to sort of repeat that, there exists a China. All of you who've, who've collected three or four Chinese designers now have entered into a China. And that your China is going to sit inside your air table. For those of you who live in China, you have a lived China experience. But there probably were no designers in that lived China. There were no voices of designers. There was no metaphor of designers. There wasn't an intersection till today possibly, of Gongli meets Wangshu. I mean, I don't know if they've met, but we should try and get them together to have a conversation saying, you're, you're famous, or Zhang Yimou talks to Wangshu or something like that. So there's a lot of people that you will encounter and you will say, I really like his work. You might never speak to them. I mean, I would sort of recommend that you just speak to them, just send them an email saying, I'm doing a project, talk to me, talk to me. Who knows? They might talk to you. And then you, your China becomes a bit more, it's less virtual, it's less fictitious, it's more real. I don't know why we would call it fictitious. It's real. It's completely real. My watching Enter the Dragon, that was the big Bruce Lee film. What was the year? 1978 was Enter the Dragon. And it was very real. I mean, he does quite amazing things with his karate. Um, anyway, today, if I were to go all the way back to 1978 to today, it's, I've been in, there's been China inside me. You know, I've embodied a particular kind of China for a very long time, for many decades now. Now, have I become a China scholar? There's a lot I know about China, but it's completely random. And you will see how random it is. You've already seen that I've just... 
you know, cherry-picked stuff. So did I choose the most complicated way to become a China scholar? And the answer is yes. I mean, why would you choose a simple, utilitarian, efficient, effective way to become a China scholar? How many are you going to study this? No, you eat Chinese food. That's a rose garden, by the way, on Elizabeth Street. Highly recommended minced chicken and green beans. They sell more of that than anything else in that shop. But it's, it's, it's Hong Kong street food. This is in Melbourne. Okay. So did I choose the most complicated way to become a China scholar? Yes. Did I become a China scholar? I think so. I'd like to use these kinds of phrases to say, you know, am I an India scholar? I know some bit about India. Am I, is my knowledge comprehensive? No, but that's not what it is. I think it's the passion. Okay, maybe. But I have a superpower. And this is something I want to share with you. Because hidden in this talk today, hidden in all these talks, is the fact that you also can have a superpower. You think your superpower is Airtable? Absolutely. Airtable is the most bonkers thing that has ever happened to you. Would you agree? It's, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's simple, it's visual, and it's yours. And all the information you put in there is yours, and that's your knowledge. It's your um, Dumbledore pensive. So my superpower is that if I do a project, I'll say it's got to last for 10 years. Not for 10 days, 10 years. So I'm going to stick with it, and I'm going to do various kinds of things with it. So this one, my China project, if I were to count it from the time I moved to Australia, it's, it's in its second 10-year period. If you have 10 years and you're not in a rush, what will your plan to fall in love be? You know, So you can grow your love, you can grow your knowledge, you can grow what is it that you want to grow very slowly. Yeah, much like this. Yes? So books, films, trips, hanging out, being in the world, becoming... Have I become? Yes. I'm comfortable in China. And whether I'm physically on Chinese soil or I'm in Australia, if I'm in the China space, I'm comfortable. Am I still becoming? Yes. But in the period that I've known China, China has changed. In the period that I've known Australia, Australia has changed in its way of thinking about China. It used to be very, very stressed out, saying, no, you can't go to China, something like and then now it's like, yeah, I was there, I went there for a party and I've just come back. It was been away for a weekend. Really? Um, do I know a lot about China? Um, I've spent a lot of time inside China. I can tell you a lot. I can endlessly talk about it. And a lot of it might have to do with design and art and manufacturing. A lot of it will have to do with manufacturing. But... Do all designers know a lot about manufacturing in China? No. Does anybody in this group of people I'm talking to today know very much about manufacturing in China? No. So it's, it's something that you realize if everything on the planet is made in China, if your iPhone is made in China, what does that factory look like? Have you seen the iPhone factory, anybody? You have to see it. Have you read a book which talks about working conditions inside the iPhone factory? So there's books about Dongguan and labor in Dongguan. So all of this stuff has traveled and gone into my head. 
So you can study all you want and you can be very, very focused on one particular thing. And I am focused on one particular thing, which is industrial design. And industrial design with a particular bent on manufacturing, which means that high end of manufacturing. So cars and uh, takumis and Japanese manufacturing and all sorts of things and expung and um, lots of things come in. And a lot of things that I have promised myself I'm not going to speak about because China has changed. There's a lot of things that are in my head, but we don't want to talk about. So when I sent out an email to all of you saying, uh, this talk is happening at the end, I realized that my scheduling wasn't very good. You're actually exploring China now. You need to know, get inspired to make mistakes now. So I should be, so I pulled it up and not a lot of you responded, but those of you who responded, one of you said, hey, Laoshi, tell us about Chinese design. And do you know what my answer is? No, go away. You find your own form of Chinese design. I'm not here to tell you, oh, this is a designer, this is how they think, and this is what you need to know. No, I want you to collect so that you own your content. And so what I'm going to do now is to show you the content that I own. You will never get this content because these are not uh, kinds of things you might want to do. So my first point is that there is a China of my books. Okay, there are three books that I bring to you. So, and I'm going to read from them. Okay, you can put off your audio and go to sleep, <laughs> but I'm going to keep going. So the first book is called Women of the Long March. And this was in the 1920s, uh, China was had let's say it was occupied in the contemporary period by there was a big american presence in china whether it was priests going around converting people to christianity there was various kinds of things going on and there was there was a power struggle amongst the followers of sun yat-sen so there was two rival uh, parties and they were both being supported by the soviet union in lots of different ways okay one of them took all their followers and set off on something called the Long March, which, which is conceptually mind-boggling. So you've got a whole army which is actually going uh, by foot, just walking. And then on the top, there are these planes coming and trying to kill them with bombs and strafing them with uh, gunfire and things like that. And this was one of the people who came out of the Long March was Mao Zedong. And there were many different commanders. They were sort of splitting up. There was Zhuda and there was various kinds of people. For me, I was reading this book about not the Long March and not the men in the Long March, but about the women in the Long March. A very large number of women traveled and they were all in the sort of what you these days call the Mao suits. And Mao's third wife, He Zichen, born 1947. She was born in Shenyang and she was on the long march. So in 2005 or maybe on my next trip at a banquet, the people in, this is in Foshan, they said, hey, ask this guy to talk about Mao's third wife. And then I had to have an impromptu delivery of a story about, uh, so Mao's second wife was executed by Kuomintang and his third wife 
was somebody who traveled with him all the way to Yan'an. And then she had to go off to Moscow for medical treatment, etc., etc. So this is a little bit of text from that book, Women of the Long March. I had the audio cassettes of this book, and then I had to put them into my car. And if, some, if when I was taking the kids, they're saying, can we not listen to this book? And I said, no, I'm really excited about it. So on all our long journeys, this book, Women of the Long March, has played. So this is about Herzogen. Herzogen was 17 when she and Mao Zedong became lovers. Although no one quite knew, knows when and where this momentous event took place. In most, most accounts, she appears as if by magic at Mao's side, shuffling papers and acting as his personal secretary sometime in 1928. Some say they met in her hometown of Yongxin in Shanxi province. Others that the meeting took place in the mountains of Jingangshan. The official reticence to clarify how and when their relationship began may be due to a lack of precise information. It might well, however, have more to do with the reluctance to admit that within months of being temporarily parted from Yang Kaihui, his first and said to be his great love, Mao had no hesitation publicly performing a liaison with Hertzi Chen, then a young partisan. A partisan is somebody who's a woman who's taken arms, who's somebody who's taken arms, and so she was fighting alongside Mao. So, and then I follow the story as she travels. So the book goes with her, it goes with Kanka Chin, so it goes with uh, different women, and it tells the story of these women. She has two children, two babies, on the long, during the course of the long march, and she has to, she has one baby. She has to give two of her babies away to villagers as they're walking, because you can't slow down the long march. And this is a fascinating story of a particular period in the formation. Now, if you go to China and if you speak to Chinese people, the 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 myth of the construction of that state rests a lot on the Long March and what happened in the Long March. Okay, so that's my book number one. The second book is a book about Shanghai in the 1920s. It's a city of Jews. It's, is this a place where they were talking about a Jewish homeland? Yes. Was this called the Paris of the East? Absolutely. Um, so... Yes, I was talking about Vidal Sassoon. I've got a hair trimmer from Vidal Sassoon. Vidal Sassoon, that family was born in Ukraine. So suddenly, again, the war in Ukraine is intersecting with the fact that the Sassoons were born. But there is another Sassoon, I think, Patrick Sassoon, in this book, The Last Rose of Shanghai. And the interesting thing, I'm going to skip out and have a look at this book. It was late in the afternoon. So this is from The Last Rose of Shanghai. And this is a book that I read in January. So this is a, a new book that's come out, but it's talking about um, life in Shanghai in the period prior to the... It was during the Second World War. It was... Which is... in The Second World War, China is largely seen as the war against uh, Japanese aggression. So to read from the book, it was late in the afternoon, a great storm had blown through, the sky looked gloomy, and the sun lay behind the clouds like a silver coin. The air 
chili, smelled of perfume, cigarette smoke, and the fried dumplings from the race course a few blocks away. When I reached one of the hotel's entrances, I saw ahead of me a jeep crash into a man on a bicycle. A local Shanghainese, I could tell, who held his legs, screaming, his face bloody. From the jeep jumped a Japanese soldier in a khaki uniform. Smirking, he stepped out of the poor biker, took out his pistol and shot him in the head. The loud gunshot pierced my ears and my heart, yet there was nothing I could do but look away. We had lost the city to the Japanese. Now, sadly, all of us Chinese in Shanghai were like trapped fish in the sunless marsh. To avoid the hook of death and to go on living, we had no choice but to remain unseen underwater. I quickened my pace, went up to the landing at the hotel's main entrance and stepped through the revolving door. A gust of warm air rode to greet me in the lobby. Letting out my breath, I unwound my scarf and took in the rich Persian rugs, gleaming marble floor, luscious burgundy leather chesterfields, and bouquets of fresh roses and carnations nestled in tall indigo vases. I loved this hotel. Before the war, I had often pampered myself by booking the Jacobian, one of the hotel's extravagant suites that featured unique French decor. So this is a bit of reading from The Last Rose of Shanghai. So Shanghai was a global city. It was a fast city. There was It was famous for its hotels and nightclubs. And, and it had a big Jewish population. And during... Hitler's sort of purge. Many more escaped from Germany and came to Shanghai. And then there was the pincer, so the Japanese sort of moved on to Shanghai and life became difficult. The other account of Shanghai comes from roughly around, let's say, before this period, so sort of between the warriors, between the First and Second World War, and that's the Zhang Yimou film called The Shanghai Triad. You can see that, and that's the film in which Gong Li is the main star. So just a short, small snippet of two forms of China. I I begin by taking a population of Shanghai out of Shanghai. So Mao was a librarian in Shanghai. And then they've, they've headed off to Yan'an. And then the Japanese have come and occupied Shanghai where the Kuomintang had moved off to Chongqing. And then this is a book about that period when the Japanese had occupied Shanghai. And then the Long March circles around, defeats the Japanese, and the modern Chinese state is born. It's by 1949 is when that's proclaimed. About 20 years or so after 49, maybe 15 years later, is this big cultural revolution where the intellectuals are sent to rural areas for re-education. So this is my third book from some time ago, and it's a book titled Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress. So reading from that, the village headman, a man of about 50, sat cross-legged in the center of the room. So this is a scene in which two university students have been taken out of the city and sent off to a remote rural village and for re-education. So these are university students who are into Western music and into all manner of things like that. 
The village headman, a man of about 50, sat cross-legged in the centre of the room, close to the goals burning in a hearth that was hollowed out on the floor. He was inspecting my violin. Among the possessions brought to this mountain village by the two city youths, which was how they saw Luo and me, it was the sole item, the violin, it was the sole item that exuded an air of foreignness, of civilization, and therefore aroused suspicion. One of the peasants came forward with an oil lamp to facilitate identification of the strange object. The headman held the violin upright and peered into the black interior of the body, like an officious customs officer searching for drugs. I noticed three blood spots in his left eye, one large and two small, all the same shade of bright red. Raising the violin to eye level, he shook it, as though convinced something would drop out of the sound holes. His investigation was so enthusiastic, I was afraid the strings would break. Just about everyone in the village had come to the house on stilts, way up on the mountain, to witness the arrival of the city youths. Men, women and children swarmed inside the cramped room, clung to the windows, jostled each other by the door. When nothing fell out of my violin, the headman held his nose over the sound holes and sniffed long and hard. Several long, bristly hairs protruding from his left nostril vibrated gently. Still no clues. He ran his calloused fingertips over one string, then another. The strange resonance froze the crowd, as if the sound had won some sort of respect. It's a toy, said the headman solemnly. This verdict left us speechless. Luo and I exchanged furtive, anxious glances. Things were not looking good. One present took the toy from the headman's hands, drummed with his fists on its back, then passed it to the next man. For a while, my violin circulated through the crowd, and we, two frail, skinny, exhausted and risible city youths, were ignored. We had been tramping across the mountains all day, and our clothes, faces and hair were streaked with mud. We looked like pathetic little reactionary soldiers from a propaganda film after they captured by a horde of communist farm workers. A stupid toy! A woman commented hoarsely. No, the village headman corrected her. A bourgeois toy. I felt chilled to the bone despite the fire blazing at the centre of the room. A toy from the city, the headman continued. Go on, burn it. His command galvanised the crowd. Everyone started talking at once, shouting and reaching out to grab the toy for the privilege of throwing it on the coals. Comrade, it's a musical instrument, Luo said casually as he could. And my friend here is a fine musician, truly. The headman called for the violin and looked it over once more. Then he held it out to me. Forgive me, comrade, I said embarrassed, but I'm not that good. I saw Luo give me a surreptitious wink. Puzzled, I took my violin and set about tuning it. What you are about to hear, comrade, is a Mozart sonata, Luo announced as coolly as before. I was dumbfounded. Had he gone mad? All music by Mozart, or indeed by any other Western composer, had been banned years ago. In my sodden shoes, my feet turned to ice. I shivered as the cold tightens its grip on me. What's a sonata? the headman asked warily. I don't know, I faltered. It's Western. Is it a song? More or less, I replied evasively. 
At that instant, the glint of vigilant communist reappeared in the headman's eyes and his voice turned hostile. What's the name of this song of yours? Well, it's like a song, but actually it's a sonata. I'm asking you what it's called, he snapped, fixing me with his gaze. Again, I was alarmed by the three spots of blood in his left eye. Mozart, I muttered. Mozart what? Mozart is thinking of Chairman Mao, Luo broke in. The audacity, but it worked. As if he had heard something miraculous, the headman's menacing look softened. He crinkled up his eyes in a wide, beatific smile. Mozart thinks of Mao all the time, he said. Indeed, all the time, agreed Luo. So that is Balzac and the little Chinese seamstress. You can see, I put a link to the film and the book in the podcast description. Okay, so so three books. Now, the next thing is I have a China that I have gleaned through podcasts. Let's say I'll call them my China through my podcasts. So the first one, which was, I think I stopped listening to it when I discovered that I had listened to about 327 episodes. They're all about an hour long. So China in Africa podcast. I learned about Africa through Chinese eyes through this podcast. Now, the China and Africa podcast is, there'll be a link in the description, is a podcast essentially about Chinese scholarships. So these are researchers who study China or, let's say, China in Africa. And let's say these are PhDs, these are people working inside research organizations and they're writing books and they've invited onto the podcast to come and discuss what they found through their research. So um, not fun stuff, but I was obsessed. And then China and Africa podcast got pulled into sub-China or the Seneca podcast. And again, I'm sort of now not in Africa, but I'm listening to scholars who have been embedded for decades. They speak fluent Mandarin or the local dialect. They are it's sort of US-based, so there's a lot of them are Americans who lived in the ground, in remote areas, in villages, inside China. And they have studied the local culture or they're looking at progress or how, uh, the, let's say, the bureau, bureaucracy or the Chinese administration has managed to produce so much progress. So this, and they report uh, and engage, let's say, with the change that is the project of China. So in all these uh, intellectual forays, in all these books, these are people saying that this is a big country and it's a country under development. It's a country that is being deliberately uh, redesigned and reworked and these are all the challenges it faces. And every time it hits a rock, it turns around and goes in another direction. And, and it's a really, really fascinating account. I learned about the programs and the deliberations. Essentially, how do you make a prosperous China? And so the the economic development, the economic goals and the smaller sort of programs are set up and then how action is enacted and then things go wrong and then how corrective measures are brought in. So the project of China, everything is a project, it's a journey. We haven't arrived yet, we're still in the process. For example, I'm going to start throwing a whole bunch of questions at you for it. For example, should the wealthy stay wealthy? 
Now, outside of China, you'll see that everywhere the wealthy who were wealthy 500 years ago are still the same people. <laughs> There's not a lot of shift that's happened. I mean, it's a bit on the periphery, but the wealthy stay wealthy. And then should the poor stay poor? Um, and should everyone be brainwashed by marketing? Um, should, should the rich have amazing schools where they study only with rich kids of their own class? Um, and the poor should not have good schools? And the poor should live far away from cities in remote areas? like in Australia. <laughs> All the money of the state should be given away as tax breaks to the very rich. Yes, that's, should that be like that? So uh, should the rich, uh, should rich people live in homes with high walls and security entrances and things like that? Is this the world that we want to create? Can we create a different kind of world? Is the world malleable? Is it open to change? China is a project. And in the sense of the project, Change is something that this is what you see is, is something on a journey. It's, it's, it's not yet arrived. And then you go to other parts of the world. Other parts of the world are being preserved. Change, no, 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 you can't do change. It's got to be preserved. Our way of life and you've got Brundtland saying, you must be careful. We don't lose our quality of life. <laughs> is this the best that we can do? Um, there are parts of the world where everyone looks the same. You know, they, you look at people's faces and you go, they all look the same. So... Is it okay to leave it that way? Should it change? There is poverty in the world, yes. But you are obsessed with becoming rich, yes. Is that a project? Do you live in a concrete box? Should So there's a lot in the way we take as the normal and that can become the project. Is the eradication of poverty a project? Yes. In 2021, China announced that it had eliminated absolute poverty. Do you know what that means? I listened to a podcast about this and there was a scholar talking about the challenges, the project, the solution and the work that still needed to be done because the absolute bottom, the absolute poverty, that was gone. And they had, let's say, a scaffolding to support the very poor. Now, what, why are you studying industrial design? So <laughs> I'm sort of using, if China is a project, so are you. If China, uh, a, a huge country, is viewed as a project and everybody works to change it for the better, to improve it, to bring some changes. If China can be a project, then are you not a project? Why did you come to study? To put some extra stuff into what you already are? Or you came to become a designer? So why are you studying industrial design? I'm studying industrial design because I want to make a lot of money. Really? I thought you came to study design so that you could become a designer. And uh, is that secondary to something else? I thought you came to explore beauty. You want to make the world a, a more beautiful place. So there you see the conflation. <laughs> I teach at university in Australia, but I also, uh, a month or so ago, I was in India and I work with the poor. Um, this is currently my project for the next 10 years, or 9 years, 9 and a half years, is going to be on how education is happening in a particular school of the very poor. So it gives me meaning. So projects I find amazing. And there are projects in China that I find amazing. Okay, so that's my first, uh, second segue. My first one was about the fact that there is the China of my books. There is the China of my podcasts. There is the China which is a project. Maybe I should change the title of that thing. 
Then there is China for industrial designers. If you were to work in Australia and you work with Bonds, which and they make underwear, and their products are sourced in China, then if you work for Bonds, then what are they called? There's another name for that company. You probably have to go keep going back and forth to China to make sure that you know you're part of the supply chain. So as an industrial designer, if you're working for a company that's making key keychains or bicycle accessories or something or something. China is a fact of your life. It's a fact of your professional life. If you don't want to do that, that's different. But China for industrial designers is a particular kind of China. It's a fly in, fly out kind of China. And it doesn't matter which part of the planet you're in. I have students in the west coast of the US and they're exhausted because they've got to keep flying into China and back. And the pandemic has gone and everyone's gone. This is very good. I don't have to do so much flying. I have uh, people I know in Israel who have to keep flying to China. Uh, there are people in India who have to keep flying to China. So if you're an industrial designer, China is a fact of your life. So you could be one of those people who becomes an industrial designer. I mean, you could turn around and go somewhere else. But if you were to become an industrial designer or an engineer, then China is a fact of your life. It could also be a fact of your life because you're born in China and you've lived your whole life in China. Now, that is one China, which is your lived China. You may be living in Australia. You may have never been to China. Uh, and you may be picking up snippets of uh, things that people throw away, phrases about China, which is not a very good place to start your journey into China. Um, are any of you uh, China scholars? Is China a text for you? Is it a project? Can you make it a project? Can you read the books? Can you listen to the podcast? So in 2005, in the industrial design program, I formulated a project. I called it the Great Civilizations Project. I was having a bit of fun calling it the Great Civilization. There were two great civilizations, which was 1700. So we're talking about India, we're talking about China, and so that look at these as great civilizations, absolutely amazing places. So there is a story. There were many different people involved in the project. For example, there was an exchange program with Foshan. So you had students go and live in China for six months. So we said, no, you can't go on a study tour and come right back. You have to go and live there. You have to put China into you. And then the Chinese students who came here came for much shorter periods of time. Um, I'm not going to name names, but you went away. So one of the students, I'm talking about him, and let's say I'm addressing him. So he, you fell in love with Hangzhou and you were to spend one semester at Zhejiang uh, University. And then you said, no, can I spend another semester? So you ended up staying on. And you said, can I stay on, please? So it had a magic for some of these people who went from uh, the industrial design program in Australia to China and then stayed on. We know the airports of China, for example. You couldn't find your passport, and it's still a joke when I meet you. Then I went with my family and the kids, both my children, learned Mandarin in school. So we rented an apartment in Beijing. And that was its own story, you know, where you're not in a touristy kind of place. And then a friend of mine, and this is addressed to him, you left your studio in New York and you moved to Shanghai after the GFC. Then for someone I used to know in Melbourne, who is not in Melbourne anymore, when the car design studios in Melbourne closed, you moved to China. Is Haval, you know, the car, is that interior, is that your work? So, so for those of you in, in this session, in this space, 
this is an immersion. You're going into China. It's, and for all of you, this is, this is new information. It's new information, but for it to enter into who you are, you might have to displace some of the old information that you've got, you know, create some space. Will you be doing an immersion after this? Will you find what you're discovering about China so exciting that you might catch a flight and go off and spend some time in China? So China for industrial designers is one, uh, let's say, thought experiment. The other thought experiment is what I've offered as the topic, which is that everything is made in China. Have you been inside factories in China? Have you been to Shundu and looked at the furniture? Have you been to Jindurjan? Have you been to the Loesch Plateau? Do you know about the Loesch Plateau? So the Loesch Plateau is a region in, in, in middle China, in the north, towards the west. And for centuries, it was known as a dust bowl. It, the, the, there was very little vegetation and life was very grim. A group of environmentalists go to the Loesch Plateau and they say that it doesn't have to be like this. There's a lot of rain. The rain doesn't stay. And our proposition is that there has been a lot of overgrazing. Civilization has come to this area and uh, nature has retreated. So we need to, we can show you how to bring it back. So this is started in uh, 78, let's say 1980. And it's been 40 years. So if you go online and look at uh, Loesch Plateau, it rains, it's green, uh, there's, there's wildlife, there's people living there. It's, it's a complete and total transformation. While that is what happened in Loesch Plateau, what happened in the way we think about the environment and sustainability and the planet is that we can actually change the landscape and then the weather will change, the rain will come. And so there is uh, an intersection of Loesch Plateau with what you hear these days, it's called the rewilding movement. And there's a huge amount of uh, new stuff that's happening. There have been apex predators. You know, if you introduce the wolf, then the trees start growing, the rivers start flowing, the rain starts happening. And so this is a completely fascinating story. So, so China gives you access to how, hypothetically, we might be changing the planet, the weather of the planet. And it, that's, that's the key that has unlocked this particular way of thinking. In Foshan, I was telling you the other day about the Nanfeng kiln, which is a pottery kiln. It's a walk-in pottery kiln. And it has the fire in that kiln has not gone out for 500 years. Wars happen, things happen. This kiln has gone on and on, which tells you something. For me, it's, it's one place that you can go to and get people to enter that space knowing, okay. So it's not, if I were to look at the world from the eyes of what has been witnessed by the Nanfeng kiln, it looks very, very different. Then there's the other thing in the contemporary period, which is lights out factories. There are a lot of factories in China, a lot of, there are some factories in China where, which are dark. Um, do they have a floor? I think they do have a floor, but not a lot of people walk into those factories. They don't need to be air-conditioned, but I think they are air-conditioned. But there's no lights. There's no human beings in them. So they are manufacturing facilities, but they're dark manufacturing facilities. And then you have this place, the office uh, co-working space in Beijing called Soho Beijing. And I was given you a link to Zhang Jin. Uh, three very distinctly different Nanfeng Kiln, Lights Out Factories, and Soho Beijing give you three access to three different kinds of China. One is the traditional China, one is contemporary uh, mass production, and the third is workspaces in, uh, let's say, the top affluent parts of China. 
I'm an engineer. I've worked inside factories in Japan and India. Day shifts. <laughs> My brother did night shifts, so day shifts. I'm interested in factories, in how manufacturing is organized. I've been into many factories. I've worked in factories, but also if they get a chance to go and visit a factory, I go into them because it tells you something. I'm not interested in the world. Okay, so this is a bit of text I wrote. I'm not interested in the world of retail, shopping, marketing, money, advertising, city culture, food, alcohol, coffee culture, organic food, money. There's lots of money. American pop music, sneakers and so on. All this chattering stuff bores me. Happiness, fun, boring. If you're looking for a chat about becoming wealthy, count me out. I'm interested in magic. And herein is, I'm going to try and wrap it up now. Is there magic in China? So you say it is magical. So... You guys have shown videos of, um, you've, shown, you've, you've collected um, uh, Wang Shu, the architect, and his work. And he talks essentially about reclaiming materials, you know, discarded roofing tiles, discarded bricks. He pulls them all in. And the Ningbo Museum, the wall of the Ningbo Museum, as you get close to it, you can see bits of old tiles in there. And he calls it, this is a traditional technique, it's called the Wapan technique. Uh, Keep that with you as, let's say, a metaphor of something quite magical that people are doing in their creative practice. That's in architecture. The other example, which when I first encountered it, this is in Fujian province, is you have villages, villages which are in, in the form of a hoop. <laughs> so essentially what you've got is, it's a, it's a huge building, a bit like the Apple headquarters. It's a huge building and in the form of a ring and then at the bottom is a courtyard and the apartments are slices of the ring so it's like a big donut with slices and then all the floors of that slice belong to one family this was a fortress village so a village might have many of these rings so when people come to attack the village it's not that easy and they can be defended and so on. So a link to this, the Tulu will be provided. In the presentations earlier, I was sort of saying, so what, what are you seeing? What are you finding? And here, what I would say to you is, when you look at design as it happens in China, at these kinds of examples, look for the notion of metaphor because the language of design in China is not functionalist utilitarian. It's not in English. So there always is the notion of the metaphor. And that is the source of design. And if that's something that you can take away and start practicing, boy, are you going to be happy. So the metaphor is a source. The poem is a source. And often you will find a reference to poems. The challenge is also at the core of design. So, you know, to break through something, not to make something that's, oh, it's utilitarian, it does the job. No, I can cause discomfort to you. There's nothing wrong in that. So it is possible for the object to make you more aware. As someone, so the, the, the metaphor allows you access to tradition, to go back into culture, to go back and look at things. And so that's there in the voice of Guope. If you have such a rich repository that you can keep, you know, going into and pulling out, then obviously your practice is going to be very, very rich. So look for the richness is something I would say. 
it's very different uh, conceptually to a notion of design where you say, oh, this is old, we must do something new. So design as change. As someone once said to me in Japan, can you explain to me what the obsession is with change? And this is a Japanese person and he's talking about the fact that outside of Japan, the rest of the world or in the West, there is an obsession with change. It has to, you have to change. Really? Why? So, but talking about things that were said, there was something else that was said about China, which was that for 1500 years, people from Japan have gone to China for inspiration, whether it's in their pottery or whether it's in their watercolor and art, it doesn't matter what it is. They've gone there to bring something back. You're going to China, go for your inspiration. If you live in China, go into the other China, the China of the arts or the China of the metaphor, not the China that you're possibly living in, which is your day-to-day -day China. Uh, go, for example, to look for the pursuit of perfection. Like you have the Takumi in Japan, you have uh, the craft centers in China where people breathe perfection. Yeah. Is it worth it? Absolutely.